Welcome to the Intentional Encourager podcast, where each episode brings you compelling conversations and stories designed to entertain, enlighten, and encourage. And now here's your host, Brian Sexton. Hey everybody, Brian Sexton. I am intentionally encouraged when I see people doing business the right way. And for the last 15 years, Damon Burton and his team at SEO National have done just that. Now you might say, Brian, what can they do for me and my business? I'm going to tell you what they can do for you. They can help you understand search engine optimization. There are a lot of players out there in the marketplace, but you want a team of people that are going to be dedicated to working with you and helping you to understand search engine optimization and how you can show up higher on search engines so that you can bring more revenue into your business. Damon and his team are full of integrity, honesty, decency, and trust. And if that's important to you and that encourages you, I would encourage you to give them a call today at 855-736-6285 or go to seonational.com and get a free quote and tell them you heard about it on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Get ready for a dynamite conversation coming up right now on the Intentional Encourager podcast. And welcome into the Intentional Encourager podcast. I'm your host, Brian Sexton. Thank you for joining us again today. I am going to do a different podcast today. Um, as you can see behind me, I'm in, in a hotel room on the road. And I wanted to do a podcast today. I have for the last 200, almost 300 episodes of the Intentional Encourager podcast, I have told you everyone else's story, but today I want to tell you my story. And I thought this would be a fitting way to end this part of the Intentional Encourager podcast. I don't know what's going to happen in the future. Um, as you listen to this, these will be some of the last episodes of the Intentional Encourager podcast because... I am going to take a step back and pause the Intentional Encourager podcast for now. I, I don't know if the Intentional Encourager podcast will come back. It might in some form or fashion, but I just wanted to take this opportunity to tell you my story. I have told the stories of so many great people, and to try to name them all, we would be here all night and all day. And I have been so grateful for everybody that has, people that have reached out to me and said, hey, I'd like to tell my story on your podcast. Or people that I've reached out to that maybe not were not friends at the time, but have become friends since then. And their stories just continue to inspire me. And so what I wanted to do today was to tell you my story and tell you what has happened in my life that has shaped me and made me want to focus on intentional encouragement. And so it, it all started on August 13th, 1972. That's the day I was born in a little town called Huntington, West Virginia, where my parents, that was the closest town that my parents lived to lived in. Uh, my dad was born and raised in Huntington. 
My mom was born and raised right across the river in a little town called Chesapeake, Ohio. When my mom was 12 years old, uh, let me let me back up a little bit. Both my parents had went through losses early in their lives. You know, I, I talk all the time about overcoming things, and and that's what we talk about in the stories of intentional encourage the intentional encourager podcast is people overcoming things in their life. When my dad was four years old in 1957. My grandfather, Sexton, stood up to pray in church and hit the floor. For all intents and purposes, hit the floor. My dad was four years old at the time. My dad was the youngest of 12 kids. His oldest brother was 28 years older than he was. My dad had nieces. My dad had, um, I won't say nieces, but I think he had two or three nephews that were older than he and and maybe a niece that was older than he or right about the same age as, as he was. My dad was born in 1953. And so, I mean, to be the youngest of 12 kids, his brothers and sisters were more like second sets of parents. And so here my grandfather dies in 1957 when my dad was four, and it basically left my grandmother to raise – um, I think I had four or five uncles still at home or getting ready, maybe getting ready to leave the house. Um, and so my dad, you know, at a young age, had to kind of grow up without a father. My mom, when she was a small child, her middle sister, she had an older sister and, and then a um, her oldest sister. Um, my mom had... Um, two brothers and two sisters. Um, my mom only has one brother left living. And their their middle sister, the, the one next oldest to her, was a teenager, and she was listening to the radio in a metal bathtub, and the radio fell into the bathtub and it electrocuted her. And so my mom was a little girl then. And then when my mom was 12, her mom, my grandmother, died of cancer. So my mom went through trauma early in her life. My dad went through trauma. Now, obviously, my dad didn't remember his dad passing away. But my mom remembers her sister and and her sister's sudden passing. And she remembers her mom having cancer. And so my parents got together pretty young. My mom had a stepmother. My, my grandfather remarried. And my mom had a stepmother that just wasn't very good to her at the time. Now, later in later years, they made amends. When I was growing up, um, we did a lot of things with my grandfather and my step-grandmother. Um, but... My mom and her did, just didn't have a good relationship. And when my mom was 16 years old, my dad had just graduated high school. My mom and dad got married um, about a month after my dad graduated high school. My dad was 18. My mom was 16 when they got married. My mom would have, been, would have turned 17 in October of that year. 
And then the following year, they had Bouncing Baby Brian. And so my parents, you know, they've got this this trauma and stuff in their lives from early in their childhood. But my mom and dad made it pretty normal for us. Now, growing up, my dad wasn't around a lot. And, and I don't mean that. I mean, my dad was always home. But when I was a small kid, my dad was always hanging out with his brothers. And it wasn't until I was probably seven or eight years old that my dad started taking me to do stuff. I went to my first baseball game when I was five. I do remember that. Um, my mom and dad took us to Cincinnati. It was about three hours away. And they took us to a Cincinnati Reds game. It was 1977, so I do remember that. Um, but then when I started playing t-ball, I played t-ball when I was like six. And then I played minor league baseball when I was eight. My dad's like, okay, you know, let me start doing some things. And it wasn't that my dad wasn't around. He, he was always there. He was, at that time, you know, my dad was 19 when I was born. So, you know, my dad's 19. So my dad is like 24, 25, 26. He's still wanting to hang out with his older brothers. And here he's got two kids. You know, we're, we're kind of fun suckers at that point. You know, my, my sister and I. Um, but the one thing my dad did for me very early in my life was my dad got me up to sing in church. I started singing in church when I was three years old. So that would have been 1975, 76, somewhere like that. And I learned to read when I was like two and a half. You know, my mom and dad would be driving down the road. And I would just look at a billboard and I'd be like, whatever that billboard is. My mom's like, is it possible that he's reading? And my dad's like, well, let's, let's try this. Yeah, I, I could read. And so I've always, I've always been a person that's, that picks stuff up pretty quick. And so my parents recognized that early in life. And so my dad started getting me singing when I was about three, singing in church in front of people. And that was probably one of the greatest things that ever happened to me because I wasn't, I was never nervous doing stuff in front of people. And so, you know, kind of fast forward through my childhood, went to a Christian school from about the fourth grade to the seventh grade, but, but, but I'll back up a little bit. So when I was in the third grade, I had an emergency appendectomy and you know, the funny thing about that is, is that I didn't think anything about it. My mom thought it was just a stomach ache. But the doctor that I went and saw was like, you got to take him to the hospital. You got to take him now. And when they got there, my mom, they told my mom, they said, if you had waited another hour, his appendix could have ruptured. It could have been really bad. And so they stuck a, not to get gross, but they stuck a tube inside of my, my, my stomach. I still have a scar there, and there's an indention there where they stuck the tube to get all the, the drainage out of it. Now it's like an outpatient thing, but I was in the hospital like 10 days back then, and um, I swallowed a penny on New Year's Eve. One night I was seven, so it was 1979, 
I swallowed a penny one night and uh, had to go to the emergency room. They had to, they put a gas mask on me and sucked it out of me. But I had a pretty nondescript childhood. Now we moved around a lot. Um, I went to grade school by the time I was in the third grade. Hey everybody, Brian Sexton. Prices are going up by the day. We've got to find ways to increase our household revenue. Now, a couple ways you could do that is, one, you could go and ask your boss for a raise. But if that doesn't work, I've got another way for you. It's my friend Joe Hart's program called Products for Profit. Joe's been a guest here on the Intentional Encourage podcast and told his story about how learning retail arbitrage changed his life, and he's been helping thousands of people change theirs. Now, retail arbitrage is simply this. It's taking a product and buying it and then reselling it online for a higher price, and you keep the profits. And guess what? Amazon and Walmart use third-party resellers every day to fulfill their customer orders. I want you to go to productsforprofit.com or productsforprofit.card.co. Get connected to Joe's team. Tell them you heard about it on the Intentional Encourager podcast and start making money today with Products for Profit. And now let's get back to more great conversation on the Intentional Encourager podcast. I had gone to like four different schools. I had gone to a school, a little school for kindergarten and first grade in Belpre, Ohio. Um, then second grade in Burlington, Ohio, the school district that I would end up graduating from. Then we moved to the neighboring little town and I went there and then um, moved to South Point. So yeah, by the, by the time I started fourth grade, I'd been in five different schools. And the school that I went to in fourth grade was the, was a Christian school. That was the fifth school I was at. So you learn how to make friends. You learned how to adjust. You learned how to just do some things. No, I take that back. Six, I'm sorry, six schools. I missed the fact we, we lived in Indiana for about six months. And I went to school out there. So, but you just learn to adapt and adjust. And so, Life was pretty nondescript, but I was a I was a, a chubby kid. After I had my appendix taken out, um, I was real skinny growing up. And then when I had my appendix taken out, it's like I just that that fat mechanism just kicked in. And I was kind of a chubby kid. And um the funny thing about it is, um, I had hair. I had like a bowl haircut into my eighth grade year. And I wore glass, you know, I didn't have glasses. Then I got glasses the next year when I was a freshman in high school. Um, I was trying to play senior league baseball and I couldn't see the ball. My my eyesight had started going bad. I was good. I was a good little league player. When I was 12 years old, I was the best pitcher on our team. And, um, you know, I was, I was a pretty good pitcher. And then, um, I got to senior league and I needed glasses. And then I got to my 15 year old year. I was a best pitcher on our team again. So, you know, again, child, my childhood was pretty nondescript. My dad was always there. My dad was always, we'd go out in the, the yard and play wiffle ball. And, and, you know, in, in the eighties, you just didn't have, you didn't have video games and stuff like that. So that's what you did. And uh, my dad always bought me baseball cards. My my son and I took those base. My my wife, we we stored them at her grandparents' house, 
And then when her grandfather got sick and passed away, um, we had to go through there and clean all that stuff out. My son's finding all these baseball cards that my dad bought for me. Now, back then, they were worth something. Now, they were pretty worth it. I think I sold the whole thing of baseball cards for like 25 bucks, and was kind of happy to, to get that money. Uh, it was a year or so ago, but I had a great childhood. My, my parents were rock solid. There was one time in I was 10 or 11 years old because I can remember sitting in the bathroom in my little league uniform and my parents were fighting terribly and um, my dad did something he wasn't supposed to do and um, he admitted to me later in life he made a mistake but my mom forgave him and they went on to have 41 years of beautiful marriage which I'll get into later but my dad, and I said this at, at my dad's funeral, my dad taught me how to love, how to serve, and how to work. And saw my dad get up every day and go to work. Saw my dad do what he had to do to provide for our family. My mom had a couple of jobs when I was growing up outside the house, but my, my mom's main responsibility and they committed to it was for her to be home and take care of the home. My mom is an incredible, I mean, she's to this day, she still does it. She makes home comfortable. My mom has a gift that way. And it's amazing because for her to get married at a young age and to her just to, to have that ability had to come from God. It just, it came from, from God. It was just so natural for my mom. So, you know, going through middle school and stuff, when I, when I, when I left the Christian school and went back to, um, public school, I got picked on a lot when I was in eighth grade, I was a chubby kid, you know, and, and, and guys would make fun of me and pick on me a little bit, but between my freshman and sophomore years of high school, I hit a growth spurt. I went from 5'8 to about 6'1 or 6'2, and I didn't get picked on anymore. <laughs> so um, high school, I was a, I was a good student. Um, on it made, the, made the National Honor Society, sang in my chorus. Um, you know, just, just lived a, a, a normal life growing up in Southeast Ohio. You know, when I was in, when I was a freshman in high school, I can remember showing up for chorus class. I'd sign up for chorus. And like I mentioned a minute ago, I'd sing all my life. Show up for chorus class and I'm harmonizing. Everybody's coming around the piano and I'm singing harmony. To me, I always sang harmony. I, I had sang with my dad. Um, we went to church where my uncle pastored. So my dad, myself, and my cousin sang in a little trio in our church and I sang harmony. I sang actually a woman's alto part. And so I was singing harmony and my chorus teacher's like, who's singing harmony? And everybody's pointing at me and she's like, I prayed for somebody that could sing harmony. By the time I left there my senior year, she's like, you're the, I've been doing this over 30 years. You're the best tenor I've ever had. I, I sang in competitions um, sang duets, sang features, sang at my high school graduation, uh, played baseball in high school. I was undefeated as a pitcher my senior year. I was 2-0 and my senior year of high school. 
um, made some questionable decisions. The back half of my senior year, I started dating a girl that wasn't good for me and got into some things that I, I shouldn't have gotten into. And in full transparency, did something on my on my prom night I shouldn't have done. And I won't go into all the details, but something that I should have saved that moment for my wife. And just, it was stupid. Uh, it was very stupid. And, you know, I, I just was not in a good headspace. And I have a friend of mine named Scott Midkiff. Scott was a teacher at South Point High School where I went to school. And I was going, getting ready to go to Marshall my freshman year, and, and Scott pulls me aside and says, you got to get away from that girl. She's trouble. She's not good for you. And I did. I, we broke up. Um, I thought I wanted to marry this girl. got her an engagement ring. My dad, it's a Friday night. My dad finds out, I don't know how, I think my little sister told on me. And my dad finds out and he meets me outside. He doesn't even let me come in the house. He meets me outside and we, we're going at it till about two in the morning. He's like, you're going to go get that engagement ring. You're going to take it back. You're not getting married at, at 17 years old. You're an idiot. And I wasn't going to marry that girl at 17, but he knew, like, yeah, dude, she's going to push you. She's going to want to get married to you. And so my dad just wouldn't let me do it. So I had to go the next morning, get the engagement ring. And, and then Scott sat me down at a pizza hut in Huntington. And, and between him and my dad, they saved me. And um, went to Marshall University in the fall of 1990. And worked two jobs. I worked at a grocery store, and I worked at the Herald-Dispatch in the sports department. That was our local paper. And I loved it. Man, I was just, I, I met a girl, fell head over heels in love with her. And, man, I was just, I was just rolling for a couple of years. Just, life was great. In the... Early winter of 1992, the early part of 1992 was the first loss that I I had to experience. I was never really close to my grandfather growing up, my mom's dad. After we got to be about 9 or 10 years old, we just didn't have much to do with him. I never really had much in common with him. I always liked sports with a ball, and he always liked to fish and hunt. So I never really had a lot to do with him. But what was really cool was the the um in the fall of 91 I got to write some columns for the paper. There was we we did something called the Armchair Quarterback. And they were guest columns from people in the community. And the assistant sports editor let me write some columns. And my grandfather subscribed to the paper, so he saw them. And I'll never forget, we were at his house on Thanksgiving. And he pulled me aside and he said, Brian, I loved what you wrote. I'm so proud of you. And then a few months later, he passed away. And so that's a memory that I'll always take with me. 
I can remember my step-grandmother. I called her Mama. She came to the grocery store that I was working at one day, and I took her groceries out to the car, and I said, Mama, I, I've got a favor to ask you. And she looked at me. She was a really, she was a short woman, so I just towered over her. I said, I want to sing at Papa's funeral. Hey everybody, Brian Sexton. You know dreams are powerful pieces of intentional encouragement. We all have them. If you're a business owner, you've probably always dreamed of taking your sales to levels you've never seen before. I've got a guy that can help you with that. His name is Brad Norwood. My good buddy Brad has been on the Intentional Encourager podcast as a guest before, and he is a dream specialist. His company, Dream It Pro, offers incentive packages to travel to places such as the Masters, Kentucky Derby, the Super Bowl, even exotic places that you've always wanted to take your team, but you just didn't know how to do it. Brad's your guy. And oh, by the way, Brad's a certified bucket list coach, so he can help your team members achieve their personal dreams as well. I want you to go to www.dreamitpro.com and find out more or call him directly at 479-466-6907. And by the way, tell him you heard it on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Let's get back to more great conversation here on the Intentional Encourager podcast. And she got tears in her eyes, and she said, that's going to be hard. And I said, you let me worry about that. You let me do that. And so here I'm 19 years old. No, my, my I, yeah, I was 19 because my grandfather died in 92. I, I hadn't turned 20 yet. I was going to turn 20 in August. So hadn't turned 20 yet. And when my grandfather died, my mom and and her sister and brothers were there and you know they're sitting on the front row my mom's crying and i i'm in a i'm in the very i'm in the back of the the funeral home chapel and i'm upstairs and the girl i was dating at the time played piano and they had an organ up there and she played it and i sang and i'm watching my mom i'm i'm watching my mom go through the the grieving stage. Now both of her parents are gone. And then the following year, I had to watch my dad go through that, losing his two two older brothers. Uh, my uncle Norman died in in early 1993, and I'll never forget. I I am standing there in a funeral home in Parkersburg, West Virginia, and here I am, 20. 20 years old and I'm holding my dad I mean I've literally got my arms around him and I'm holding him and you know now that I'm a I'm a a father of a 22 year old son I can see myself in that moment God forbid something happening with somebody that I love and my 22 year old son's holding me Now I know what that feels like. I didn't, I had no idea then, but I know what that feels like now. And I look back at it and I'm like, okay. It was different from my dad and I. In 1993, my dad would have been 40. My dad would have turned 40. Yeah. I'm 50, so there's 10 years difference when he had kids and when I had kids. And so... You know, just putting myself in that moment, I could understand it now. 
And then six months later, you know, the last time I saw my Uncle Leroy alive was at my Uncle Norman's funeral. And then we're, we're going six months later to his funeral in Parkersburg. And I'm having to be there for my dad again. And I just, I didn't like seeing my dad go through that. My dad and I have very similar personalities. And when, when you watch somebody that has a similar personality to you go through just horrible grief, um, it rocks you a little bit. And so that year was probably one of my toughest years because I lose two uncles and in a relationship I thought was going to be a lifetime relationship ends up fizzling out. Girl I dated for almost three years, we broke up. And so, you know, life just has a way of taking those twists and turns. And um, I'm switching majors at college at this point. I switched from marketing to, or journalism to marketing. Because all because I didn't want to write for the school newspaper at Marshall. Um, one of the requirements of, of the journalism program at Marshall, the print journalism program, was that you had to write for the school newspaper. And I had two jobs that paid me money, and I was going to have to give them up to take one job that didn't pay me anything. And it's like, nah, this ain't, nah, can't do that. So I switched to marketing. Um, my dad was a salesperson. My, uncle, my uncles were salespeople. It was just natural for me to, to progress into that area. I felt like, for me, marketing was just the natural fit. And so I did that. And continued to work at the newspaper, met another girl. Um, our parents knew each other from the time we were little kids. She lived in Northern Virginia, uh, fell in love, thought I'd fallen in love again, uh, asked her to marry me, and then um, get over there to see her. She lived about six hours away. Drive over to see her, and she's like, yeah, this isn't working out. Gives me my engagement ring back. And... Um, I've always known how to make lemons out of lemonade. So I take the engagement ring back. So I'll be like, well, listen, you know, it's our anniversary. And, you know, I got you a, a purse. I'm like, well, at least let me stay the weekend. Let's go have dinner. And let's just hang out. She's like, okay, cool. So um, we're at this mall in Tyson's Corner, Virginia. She's like, well, I need to get you something. You got me something. I need to get you something. And so I saw this Florida Marlins jersey. I was like, I like that. She's like, all right, I'll buy that for you. So I got my engagement ring back, walked away with a sweet Florida Marlins jersey, and then took the money back and bought a keyboard. So it worked out well. And, uh, yeah, it, it worked out really well. So, um. But I was lonely. I dated two or three girls, and I was just like, man, this sucks. I am just lonely. I'm not finding that one. Meanwhile, the girl that I had dated for three years and broke up with, she got married. And it just. And then I had the bright idea in 1995. I'm down to my last semester at Marshall. 
I had the bright idea. I had to take a geology class. And I had the bright idea that I was going to just not show up for classes. I was going to show up for the first day, the midterm, and the final, get my D and leave and graduate. Dumb idea. That was an epic fail, as the kids say. And I flunked, flunked the class. So not only was I supposed to graduate, I was supposed to go through graduation that night. So I'm sitting at home, I'm like, I'm supposed to graduate tonight. The girl that I dated for three years is getting married. I'm not graduating tonight, and she's marrying another guy, and I don't have anybody. And I was just like, this sucks. I remember sitting on the couch going, just, this just sucks. But God had something for me. He had somebody for me. And I, I had no idea what was about to happen to me. And, um, so I will, um, I'll go a little bit further and I'll end this, this part of the episode. So it's, it's, it is right after Christmas and my best friend, Chris Bernoski, he's having a, a party at his house. He's like, you need to come out. He's like, just don't sit at home. Come out and and hang out with us. I'm like, yeah, cool. And I knew Chris. I mean, you know, I knew Chris. I knew his, you know, I knew his dad was going to be there, and I knew a couple people that he was friends with. But it's like, well, Chris asked me, I'll just go over and um, hang out. And his fiance Julie was like, hey, um, there's this girl I work with named Tanya, and you know you want to go out on a date with her? I'm like, yeah, what, what, what I got to lose? I was singing a little bit with some buddies of mine, the Godsman. And, um, so I was just filling my time with different stuff. I had just gotten my first full-time job with a food broker. I was traveling quite a bit and I was like, well, you know, whatever. Yeah. I'll come hang out. Sure. You know, if I got nothing else better to do. And so we go out on this this blind date, and I show up looking like Vince Gill's little brother. I, I'm wearing a royal blue sport coat and a banded color shirt and suede black vest and and black jeans and cowboy boots I'd borrowed from Chris. And Tanya shows up, and she 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 looks great. And we go to Bob Evans and eat dinner, and we go to a movie. And, um, she didn't say anything to me the whole night. And I'm like, well, this went horribly off the rails. So it was December 30th. I'm like, well, you know, okay. I didn't even give it, I didn't even kiss her good night. She just kind of said bye and headed to her house. It's like, all right, well, let's chalk that up. So the next night I had planned, it was New Year's Eve. I had planned to go singing with the guys. I plan to go. I plan to go with the guys and you know maybe sing two or three songs with them and fine with me. Probably come home and just chill out or whatever. And Chris calls me that morning. Um, at that time, I had a separate phone line in my room where I lived at home with my parents because um, I I would get faxes there and the company paid for it and I was like sweet my own phone line. Hemone answering machine, everything. It was it was pretty cool. 
And uh, Chris calls me and he goes, what are you doing tonight? I said, I'll probably go sing with the guys. That's why. He said, well, Tanya wants to get together with you tonight. You know, come come hang out with us. I was like, yeah, why not? And so uh, we go to the house that Julie was staying at, and we just hang out, and Tanya, something happened. Tanya and I clicked. And it was about 3.30 in the morning on New Year's Day, and I kissed her goodnight for the first time. I was like, okay, this is cool. This this could go somewhere. And we go out on a date a week later. I show up to pick her up. It's our first date by ourselves. And um, her mom, Tanya's finishing getting ready, and her mom comes out. And she goes, I have to ask you a question. She kind of leans forward in her chair. She goes, I got to ask you a question. Okay, what's that? She goes, did your grandfather die in church? I'm like, yeah, as a matter of fact, he did. And and she she really leaned forward and she goes, I have something to tell you. She said, I thought your last name was familiar. It's okay. She goes, I was 14 years old. I was there that night. Not only was I there, but both of Ta- but both of Tanya's sets of grandparents were there. Her maternal grandparents and her paternal grandparents. And she said, not only that, not only was I there, but Tanya's dad was there. We saw the whole thing happen. It's like, wow. Here, Tanya and I had never known each other. But yet, somehow, God brings us together through these series of events. And um, it was pretty amazing. And so, we got married in October and in part two of this, I'll tell you some cool stuff as well. How the next 26 years of my life would shape up. Thank you for joining me today on the Intentional Encourager podcast. And be sure you come back for part two of my story. My thanks as always to producer Bryce Sexton and technical advisor Matt Means. And of course, the ultimate thanks goes to the Lord Jesus Christ, who provides intentional encouragement every day through his word. If you're not subscribed to the Intentional Encourager podcast, hit the subscribe button wherever you get podcasts so you don't miss an exciting episode where you can get encouraged and stay encouraged. And remember, anyone, anywhere, at any time, any place can be an intentional encourager.